justliberty.org. It's good for you and it's good for me. Justliberty.org. Justliberty.org. Hi, this is Amanda Marzullo. An economist from Texas A&M argues that switching to daylight savings time year-round would measurably reduce crime. According to her analysis, the extra hour of daylight in the evening would reduce crime the same way that lighting makes parking lots and street corners safer. However, the extra hour of daylight in the morning does not provide the same benefit, she says, because criminals are not early risers. A pill bending at the Texas legislature would shift Texas permanently to daylight savings time. So, Scott, is it time to change the time? I'm not sure if I agree that changing the time won't reduce crime in the mornings. When, when time changes in the spring, I'm always groggy for about two days. And I find that I commit very few crimes during that period. And so I, I, I'm not sure I buy that. But maybe in the aggregate, more light in the evenings would reduce crime. More. That, that's probably what it is. Yeah, I just disagree with her assumption that criminals are not early risers. I mean, in my experience, these are the most enterprising individuals I know. Just whatever it takes yeah, kind exactly. of people. Yeah, that, you know, that, they make it happen. That, that's probably true. All right, hello, boys and girls, and welcome to the March 2019 episode of the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast covering Texas criminal justice, politics, and policy. I'm Scott Henson with Just Liberty, here today on the South by Southwest podcast stage with our good friend Mandy Marzullo, who's the executive director of the Texas Defender Service. How are you doing today, Mandy? I'm great. How are you? I'm really excited to be here. Normally, Mandy and I record this podcast over a bottle of scotch in her office with only her dog listening, so... Having an audience with opposing thumbs is really a big change for us, and and we appreciate y'all being here. Coming up, will the Texas legislature finally reduce marijuana penalties in 2019? Why do Texas courts allow testimony from hypnotized witnesses? And of special interest to South by Southwest participants, we discuss new data showing Austin drivers are more likely than anywhere else in the state to get their asses kicked by police at a traffic stop. We'll be joined later by Judge Elsa Alcala, who recently retired from the Court of Criminal Appeals and is now working with Mandy to promote criminal justice reform at the legislature. Mandy, what are you looking forward to on the podcast? Uh, talking to Judge Alcala. <laughs> I'm always happy to be talking to her. Excellent. Me too. So first up, in our top story, reducing penalties for marijuana possession seems to have real momentum at the Capitol. So Scott, what's on the table and what do you think will actually pass? This is a really exciting moment because marijuana penalty reduction has been proposed in Texas basically every year for the last 20 years and has never really gotten as much momentum as as it has today. Since the last legislative session, the Republican Party of Texas actually included in its platform a provision to reduce penalties and create a civil penalty for marijuana. So it would basically decriminalize is what the Republican Party has proposed. Governor Greg Abbott, during a debate with his Democratic uh, opponent last year, Mm -hmm. came out for not decriminalizing, but reducing the penalty, keeping it a criminal penalty, but making it like a traffic ticket. And so there have been bills filed basically on both these avenues. We don't really know which is going to happen or or either, really. I guess there's still a lot of ways for these things to fail. But it's an exciting moment. There's about 75,000 people a year arrested for marijuana in Texas. So that it, it, it's a it would be a big change. You know this this traction is really exciting. I mean, it, around here at the festival, you hear people talking about the potential tax revenue for marijuana. Is that something that is potentially on the table here? Like, what are the implications? 
Texas is probably not, is not really yet at the legalization stage. So we're not yet having, you know, tax and revenue and there's no store, not going to be so, storefront. Yeah, so I'm not going to be able to buy it anytime soon. You wouldn't recommend that. Well, you can probably go down the street right now. That's probably not really a problem. But... Um, <laughs> But they won't be paying any taxes on it, I guess, is what, would, <laughs> is what the issue would be. But um, there is an economic angle. I mean, a lot of this in Texas is being pushed because fiscal conservatives, and this is why the governor is on this, because fiscal conservatives are mad about paying for jail time mm-hmm. for pot smokers. If they're indigent, then they have to pay for a lawyer because the, it's a serious enough crime to where you you're, you get to have an attorney. The police officer who arrests somebody, they may be taken off the streets for two or three hours while they take somebody down to the jail and book them and get all that processed. And so there's a lot of economic cost to local government that would result in savings. And I think that's more what people in Texas are really looking for. Yeah. And just to give people a sense of the figures, like, you know, jails spend somewhere between 50 and $100 a night to detain somebody. So at 75,000 people, that's, you know, $7.5 million right there that can be saved at the county level. Yeah, if they're, if they're just only in for one night apiece. And, of course, mm-hmm. the maximum punishment for marijuana in Texas is up to six months in jail and a, up to a $2,000 fine. So, so it's potentially a lot more than that, really. So next up, in 2017, the Texas legislature passed the Sandra Bland Act, which was named after the young teacher who was famously arrested in Waller County for failing to signal a lane change. She then died in custody at the county jail after an apparent suicide because she couldn't make a $500 bond. Language in the bill to forbid such arrest was removed in the Texas Senate. However, the act that passed requires that law enforcement provide extensive information regarding their arrests and the use of force at traffic stops. So, and the first reports were released on March 1st. So, Scott, what's new about the reporting and what have we learned so far? This is actually very, very interesting to me. Texas, for years, has gathered racial profiling data that was designed to tell us whether there was racial discrimination at traffic stops. And there has been, for years, demonstrated in these reports, disparities in who is stopped, disparities in who is searched, but the data was very limited. There were just a couple of data points, and, you, and the statisticians really couldn't dig very deeply into these questions. The Sandra Bland Act last session changed all that, and we now have these incredibly detailed reports. The, the information that was most startling is we got new details about how often police use force at traffic stops, how often basically the driver is injured by the police officer through a use of force incident. And it turns out that Austin, Texas, Austin has the highest rate in the state by far. 71? At rate per 10,000. They were at 71 per 10,000. Houston PD was at 53. Most everybody else, the Texas DPS, which was fifth in the state, was at like 17. And everyone else was much, much lower. Yeah, fractions of one. That's right. So, So, you know, in the decimal places. That's right. In my hometown of Tyler, Texas, which is in northeast Texas, People in Austin are 335 times more likely to have force used against them at a traffic stop in Austin than they are in Tyler. So it's a big disparity. Now, in the scheme of how often, you know, this happens to people, it's not every traffic stop. It's not everyone who's pulled over. But 
Austin has a much more serious problem, and it's not something anyone knew before this data. There was no way before this happened for anyone to even have a window into that. Another thing was uh, arrests at traffic stops for just the Class C misdemeanor, for when you're pulled over for whatever the traffic offense is. You know, yeah, signal failing to signal a lane Uh, lane change. change. Like, Like Sandra Bland. Sandra Bland had failed to signal a lane change. She was pulled over. She back-talked the cop, and he decided, I'm just going to arrest you for this underlying failure to signal a lane change. Well, we've never had data before on how often this happens. And just like with the use of force, it turns out that there's wide, wide disparities. So the, the place in Texas where you're most likely to be arrested at a traffic stop is in Waco. And it turns out almost one in 20 drivers pulled over are arrested in Waco. This is crazy. The rest of the state... It's far, far lower. There's a handful that are, you know, 450 out of 10,000 in in Waco, around 400 out of 10,000 in League City. There's a few others that are up there that high. And then everything else is just really, really low. And so you're seeing that there's some some agencies that are outliers on this, where there's a policy for whatever reason to... Mm -hmm. Like, do yeah, these arrests more often. Yeah, you know, there there are some counties that brag that there are zero, you know, real estate tax case, like jurisdiction. And that means that they're pulling over everybody that they can well, that, that's when right. they drive through. That's right. And I think the example you're thinking of is in Lumberton, Texas, where 16% of their city budget is from traffic fines, but they don't have any local property taxes. So, uh, exactly. They're that's... saving people money. <laughs> makes total sense. I mean, for me, and this kind of, you know, brings home just, you know, how much the law is about implementation and also that we have so many different criminal justice systems in the state. Like, how it, this doesn't just happen at the law enforcement level. It also happens in the courts where people who have the same conviction with the same background in different areas of the state will have radically, radically different sentences. Right. County by county, city by city, it's very different. And prosecutor to prosecutor. Right. And, and usually we don't get the, the sort of data, the level of data to make those distinctions. At, at a prosecutor agency, it may just look like the whole agency is one way. Well, it may just be a few prosecutors driving the train. And similarly with this, you look at statewide data on arrests or whatever, it turns out it's just a handful of agencies are really extreme and others may not be. But we didn't have this window until now to, to really see. And there's a lot more data that just came out. This was kind of extraordinary. We did not get the big win in the Sandra Bland Act that we wanted, which was to say you just can't arrest people for those low-level traffic offenses. 11% of arrests in Harris County, Houston, for example, are these Class C misdemeanor traffic ticket level arrests. So it's a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. We didn't get that, but getting transparency, getting some data and reporting on how often it happens has almost immediately transformed the debate because we now can see the problems very plainly that before were obscured. Yeah, no, so um, we're more to come, folks. All right, next, Texas boasts more drivers with a suspended license than any other state. Specifically, more than 1.7 million people in Texas, the overwhelming majority of whom lost their licenses due to a little-known program called the Driver Responsibility Surcharge. Essentially, when people are ticketed for no insurance, 
driving without a license or even a DWI, not only do they have to pay the fines that are associated with the crime, they also have to pay steep surcharges every time they renew their license for the next three years. These surcharges are so high that the majority of drivers can't pay, causing their licenses to be suspended. But the legislature has struggled to get rid of this program because the money collected goes to fund trauma centers at Texas hospitals. So legislators can't end the program without finding new money for those hospitals. More than a dozen bills have been filed this year to abolish the driver responsibility program with an array of alternatives for funding. Mandy, is this the year Texas finally gets rid of this monstrosity? God, I hope so. <laughs> like, this, this program has created so many problems for so many people. I mean, 1.7 million people. But There's only 16 million drivers. That's more than 10%. It's like a lot of folks. Yeah, no, it's, it's an incredible number when you think about it. I think what is exciting about this year is that there finally is a conversation about how to replace the funding. I think the problem that reform activists like you and me have is that no one can really argue that funding trauma centers isn't important. Right. You know, it's something that we all need. But That's right. You can't badmouth the hospitals. Everyone likes them. They're not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, when I talk about this with my family, they're like, wow, that... Your opposition are the hospitals that I can't think of anything that would be harder to argue against. And that's right. Unless it were just the maternity ward in the hospital. That, that's, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or pediatrics or something. That's right. Like, but so, we, so what's great this time is that people are talking about, well, this is a bad way to raise money, so how else can we fund it finally? Right. They're finally looking at some broader-based sources of money. When you, when you say, okay, everyone who's ticketed for no insurance is going to pay for this through your surcharges, well, honestly, if they could have afforded the surcharges, they would have paid for their insurance in the first place. And so it doesn't really make sense to hone in on this, this small group of people and say, you're going to be the ones who fund the hospitals. Some of the things they're looking at now are more broad-based and make really a lot more sense. They're looking at, for example, an extra $2 fee on auto insurance policies. Well, everybody has to buy auto insurance, and so that spreads the pain out among everybody and probably would just make a lot more sense. And I do think that you know, no one in a Republican-controlled legislature wants to raise fees, raise taxes, increase revenue sources. That's always a dicey thing. But the harms from hundreds of thousands of people having no driver's license, can't get a job, all the things. Think about all the things. You can't, can't get a bank account. All the things that you use your driver's license for hundreds of thousands of people are simply excluded from all those aspects of public life. Yeah, and you've talked about this a lot on your blog, but you know, it also triggers this recycling that is disruptive to their lives, right? Like if you're if law enforcement knows that you don't have a license, you're likely to be pulled over if they just see you driving around in a small town. And that means that, you know, you could be interrupted on your way to work and having to deal with an arrest and you lose your job again. Right. About half the people who've ever gotten these surcharges in Texas could not pay and to this day don't have their driver's licenses. There are people who lost their licenses 14 years ago and still don't have it back because they'll never be able to pay those surcharges. Yeah, and they'll never be able to not drive either. So it's it's time for the legislature to fix this for sure. Yeah, so it's exciting. Next up, in a segment we call Forensic Focus, recently retired Texas Court of Criminal Appeals Judge Elsa Alcala explains how forensic techniques now regarded as junk science have permeated the American criminal justice system. 
Joining us for this segment and the next one on capital punishment is Judge Elsa Alcala, a recently retired Republican member of the Court of Criminal Appeals. For the uninitiated, Texas is one of two states that has separate high courts for criminal and civil matters, and the Court of Criminal Appeals is the equivalent of the Texas Supreme Court for criminal cases. Judge Alcala was appointed to the court by Governor Rick Perry, then returned to the bench by the voters before leaving when her term expired this January. And she's now joined Mandy's shop as policy director for the Texas Defender Service. Thank you for joining us, Judge. Thank you for having me. So let, let's start with forensic hypnosis. Uh, Mandy and I have covered this a couple of times on the podcast, and now State Senator Chewy Hinojosa has filed Senate Bill 130 to ban this practice. Judge, can you explain to a layperson how fairly obvious examples of junk science like this can make it into the courtroom? Sure. So let me talk about three cases that were decided while I was on the court in the last uh, seven and a half years. One of them was Neil Hampton Robbins. He was convicted of murder for the 1999 death of a 17-month-old child. The child was found unresponsive in bed and was found to be deceased. A medical examiner testified at trial by saying that um, it was an intentional homicide based on the physical signs that she saw on the child. Well, it turns out years later, like in 2015 or 16, that same medical exam- examiner came forward and said, well, I've relooked at the case, and I don't know. I don't know if what I said was right, or I don't know if it was wrong. I just don't know. Uh, also at that trial, there had been a defense expert who had said this was not an intentional death at all. And when my court reviewed that case, we held that 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 uh, the conviction needed to be reversed on the basis of that bad science from the medical examiner. Uh, there was another case just in December of 2018 where my court reversed. I say my court. I'm not on the court anymore. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> you were at the time. You yeah, can say old it. Old heavens die hard. <laughs> so I will continue to say my court uh, um, by mistake, but I'll, I'm doing it accidentally. Uh, but the Court of Criminal Appeals, when I was on it, held an ex parte uh, Stephen Mark Cheney, who also was convicted of murder, that uh, that case needed to be reversed due to bad science that was used to convict him. In that case, the victim had a bite mark on his arm, and forensic odontologist testified that that bike mark was made by Stephen Mark Cheney. So they actually identified him as the person who made the bite mark. Fast forward uh, a couple of decades, and now uh, odontologists and the scientific community all say that you just can't do that. Uh, that expert had said that there was a one in a million chance that somebody other than uh, Stephen Mark Cheney had bitten the victim. And today, uh, the medical community or the forensic medical community just says that's just garbage. You just can't do that. And that case was also reversed, and he was actually found innocent of that offense after spending, I think, almost uh, three decades or three decades-ish in prison for murder. And I think that made Texas the first state in the country to basically get rid of bite mark evidence for the courts to say you can't use that anymore. I, I think that's right. Um, and then there's another case that is even more kooky than this bite mark evidence. Uh, that's the case of uh, Richard Lynn Winfrey, who also was convicted of murder. In that case, 
there was this dog handler uh, by the name of Deputy Keith Pikett, who worked for the Fort Bend County Sheriff. And he had, he was the sole guy to do this, but he had this bright idea, well, if dogs can uh, take a scent and find, let's say, a lost person, I'm going to now do these, uh, do a lineup with a dog. So Deputy Pickett took the victim's clothing and had the dog smell the victim's clothing. And then he took the scent of the, the suspect and five other men. So he did the lineup with six men's scents. And I don't recall how he got the scents. I think that's a... <laughs> they swab it with gauze. They would, oh, okay. yeah. It's more scientific than I was visualizing. So he gets the scents of the men and puts the scents into these paint cans. And then he li- lined up the six paint cans and had the dog walk in front of the paint cans. And then the dog apparently alerted on Winfrey's scent. And Pickett Pikett surmised that because he alerted on the paint can that had the defendant's scent, the dog was identifying the defendant's scent as having been on the victim's clothing, and therefore the defendant had been with the victim. All of that is just garbage. It's just just created fiction on the part of this deputy, but it was admitted, you know how many cases. Hundreds of cases. And just as a crazy aside on that, because that really was one of the nuttiest (laughs) forensic stories I've ever heard, the the scent lineup, the idea for a scent lineup is actually something that was only otherwise done in communist countries. It was created by the East German Stasi um, (laughs) back during the Cold War. And the only other country anywhere that uses this is communist Cuba. And Castro was using scent lineups to try and identify people who had done anti-government graffiti, if you can imagine, (laughs) in Cuba. Um, But again, completely junk. The idea that you're going to go to a graffiti site and identify somebody's smell and then use a dog to identify them. With paint around in both examples. is completely crazy. Um, and yet, and, and this, I guess, brings me to my original question. How does this happen? How does this get in? Because that is nuts. The idea that, oh, you bit somebody and I can look at that bite mark and say, for sure, Elsa bit that person. How does these completely dubious, non-scientific forensic methods continue to get into American courts? The Pikett case was, was I think, 2015 or something. You know, this is pretty late in the day in the 21st century to still be using these kind of bogus scientific methods in in criminal court. So why is it happening? One of the things that that has bugged me the most, or one of the things that bugged me the most when I was on the Court of Criminal Appeals is this idea of uh, we've always done it this way. So let's say, for example, one judge somewhere decides to admit the Pikett evidence. Well, then the next court faced with this would, would be told by Pikett and that court, no, these, this is valid stuff. This other court's admitted it and all these other courts have used it. So it gets used, once one court does it, then mm-hmm. that's used to build up on it and it gets used over and over again until somebody somewhere has the resources to get the, the competing expert or the competing evidence to say, no, this is a bunch of garbage. And that really, 
ties into the bigger systemic problem that I wrote about a lot when I was on the Court of Criminal Appeals, which is that we have a real problem in Texas with the failure to appoint counsel to indigent defendants on habeas post-conviction because Texas doesn't have a real mechanism for challenging the effectiveness of an appointed attorney or any attorney. So it's, to me, a bigger systemic problem. There, there, let's say you have a bad lawyer, a defense mm-hmm. lawyer. The defense lawyer doesn't object to trial because whatever. He doesn't object or maybe he asked for an expert and he was denied an expert. So he either doesn't have money or doesn't know to do it or he's not very good or whatever. Then the stuff comes in. Then his the client wants to say, oh, I had a really bad lawyer. I want to, I have all these challenges that the mm-hmm. lawyer didn't make. But then the only way to do that is on habeas and he's not entitled to a, an appointed lawyer on habeas. So to me, all of this is part of a, a big systemic thing. I, I look at bad science and I think, yeah, there's bad science, but it's more than bad science. It's bad science in a system that doesn't have a real way of challenging a, a bad attorneys. And that's <laughs> been one of my big gripes in Texas. Yeah, and, and defense lawyers are just under-resourced in Texas. It's re- You're appointed by the judge who's also in charge of the indigent defense budget and doesn't really want to spend a lot of money. And you have to ask them, convince that person who's also in charge of your livelihood to give you more money. It doesn't make sense if you think about it. And I want to add to that, you know, there's been this big debate even in Austin about, well, do you have solo lawyers or do you have a public defender? And why and how is a public defender superior to a solo lawyer? And my answer is, look at these science cases. If you have a public defender's office, they're going to be aware of these problems that are come up over and over and over again. They're going to find the experts that they're they're going to use over and over and over again, and they're going to have the resources to really challenge this bad stuff in court. I think a solo lawyer, even the most educated, well-intentioned lawyer, is going to have a challenge taking on an issue involving complicated science. Because again, lawyers are not scientists and you know the joke is we're not good at math that's why we're we're not good at this science <laughs> stuff and so that's that's the the problem is that you, you have lawyers trying to understand science and it, it's a real challenge because we're not experts in that and expert testimony is just really persuasive to the jury it really is and that's where it's really hard also if you're a solo practitioner like for example cheney had an alibi which I believe was presented at his trial. He was elsewhere. I think he had a bunch of alibis. Yes. I think he had like nine alibi witnesses that they disbelieved because some guy in a lab coat said the bite mark Yeah, we, there, there's a one in a million chance. And, and now, I mean, and bite mark evidence is so botched that you can't find two experts to agree on an outcome. Next up, Judge Alcala will stay with us for our regular segment on capital punishment titled Death in Texas. As mentioned earlier, Judge Alcala is also Mandy's new colleague serving as policy director at the Texas Defender Service and someone I've admired for a long time. 
Judge, your views on capital punishment have evolved very publicly over the years from a tough-on-crime prosecutor at the Harris County DA office during the Johnny Holmes era to perhaps the state's most prominent death penalty critic. Over the course of your eight years on the bench, the court presided over 92 executions. So tell us what you learned from that experience and how and why your opinions have changed since your days as a line prosecutor. So I graduated from law school in 89, here from UT Law School, and went straight to the DA's office uh, working for Johnny Holmes, who's uh, um, infamous for being the most death-seeking prosecutor, I think, at least in his era. I'm not sure if he still holds that title, but at least at the time, he was a tough-on-crime prosecutor. But frankly, back in the 80s, that was the mentality. That really mm-hmm. was a tough on crime mentality. It was put them in prison, throw away the key. The more time, the better. There was also a crack epidemic going on. There was just, I, I think I tried something like 10 murders one year, something like that. And I got like 10 life sentences. There was just a, a lot of crime in Houston in the late eighties, early nineties. And again, the mentality was, either lock them away and throw away the key or you seek death on them. And that's the the culture that I was um, employed by. And when I interviewed for the office, they asked me, how do you feel about the death penalty? And I told them what I'd heard at law school. You know, I just come from UT law school. And I said, well, um, I don't think it we should do it and they asked why, and, the, and I repeated again what a professor had said, that it doesn't make a whole lot of fiscal sense to do it. It's just, it's just not a good uh, fiscally responsible thing to do. And one of the senior prosecutors there, like the sep- second guy in charge or third guy in charge, said, well, stick around for five years, and we'll see how you feel then. And by that, he was right. I mean, I, I started out thinking, oh, I'm not so sure But after five years of seeing victim after victim after victim and all these horrible things that were done to these these innocent people, Mm -hmm. innocent victims, I did uh, fall into that position of absolutely death is right. You know, that's what we've got to do. It's important for the victims and it's important for society. So that's where I started and I tried three death cases. Two of them uh, got the death sentence. One was 17 years old at the time, Eddie Capetillo, who got the death sentence. And, you know, now I have two 19-year-olds and a 16-year-old child. And in my head, I think, oh, my gosh, you know, that was just a a monster of a thing to do, to seek death on a 17-year-old. But at the time, I was focused on the victims. It was Mm -hmm. just a horrific crime. Um, where, um, anyway, it was a horrific crime where, where young people had been killed. And, and at the time, I did believe it was the right thing to do. Now, he did not get executed because the United States Supreme Court has since held that the death penalty is inapplicable to somebody who's under 18. So I'm grateful that the U.S. Supreme Court has stepped in and not allowed the execution of uh, somebody under 18. And then the second one who's on death row, his name is Gerald Eldridge, and he remains on death row today. He's been there, you know, 30-ish years, or maybe 25 years. Um, He always claimed that he was mentally ill, and we come back to experts. So he always said from day one he was acting out and acting mentally ill, 
But the experts, the psychiatrist, told me and testified in court that they were watching him 24-7 in prison. And they said, well, he acts one way when he's in front of um, the psychiatrist being evaluated and so on. But then when we're watching him in the game room and at these off hours and socially, he, he is not acting like that. And so they said he's malingering, he's faking. Mm-hmm. And I believe that. Now, again, fast forward to today and, and my skepticism about these experts, you know, I, I maybe I'm not so sure today. But back in the day, I believed it. I did believe that he was a malingerer and he uh, he had killed like a nine-year-old girl, Sharissa, who was asleep on the bed. He was mad at the girl who had uh, dumped him and he chased her out of an apartment into another area and gunned her down while she was climbing up some stairs. Her new boyfriend had to jump out of like the second story of the apartment. And then a little boy, Terrell, who was like seven years old, was also in the room. And he shot, I think Terrell was his own son, and he shot at his own son like towards the head. And the bullet ended up lodging in the shoulder. So when I say I saw some horrific crimes, that's an example of just horrific crimes. Uh, Owen, of course, his criminal history was such that he had done essentially the same thing against a former girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the kinds of things when prosecutors say, you know, justice and and we need it and that sort of thing. You have to remember that's what they're seeing. And they're talking to family members firsthand who are, you know, upset and crying and, and are living through this horror. That's the kind of thing that's going on. So that's where I started. <laughs> And I don't know if you want me to stop or, or keep going. No. Yeah, no, what what, okay. what what happened after then that sort of changed um, your view? So I was at the DA's office for nine years, and then I was appointed trial judge for three and a half years by Governor Bush. I was elected to the trial court, then I was appointed by Governor Perry to the first court of appeals, and I won two elections to the first court of appeals. The first court of appeals uh, does not deal with death cases. In Texas, the way that death cases get litigated is they get tried at the trial level, and then they get appealed straight up to the highest court, which is the Court of Criminal Appeals. So when I was on the first court, I didn't deal with death cases at all, and it was was nice, actually. (laughs) We dealt with all kinds. It's a general jurisdiction court, so we dealt with a family, uh, probate, uh, divorces, civil litigation, oil and gas, you know, it was just, it was everything, criminal too, but everything. And so that was a, a nine-year break, so to speak, of the death penalty. So then I got appointed by Governor Perry to the Court of Criminal Appeals and was dealing again with death penalty cases for the first time in almost a decade. And so I didn't come with that former prosecutor mentality mm-hmm. of, that firsthand experience, I'd had a, a decade away from it, and I was really having to approach things almost as if for the first time, you know, looking at things from a fresh perspective. And I think that's where I started really questioning what was going on, where I started seeing cases that were coming up, and I saw convictions that had bad science, like the things we've talked mm-hmm. about. I saw guilty people who were being released and found actually innocent, like uh, Michael Morton, who was convicted of murder, or Anthony Graves, who was actually on death row, almost executed. He had a couple of execution dates. 
on death row, and then it turned out that he was actually innocent and released from prison. So, but for uh, um, some fortuitous discovery of, of evidence in his favor, Anthony Graves would have been executed even though he was innocent. And uh, I saw some terrible, terrible lawyering at the trial level, at the appellate level, at the habeas level. level. I saw just a confluence of things, bad science, bad lawyering, innocent people. And I started realizing that the death penalty has some very significant problems. And I have said that the way I've described myself is to say I've lost confidence in it as a form of punishment. I haven't gone so far as to say we shouldn't have it. I still have that inner struggle, Mm -hmm. you know, seeing the victims that I saw and hearing some of those things. I still have some of that inner struggle remembering those cases. On the other hand, I am totally convinced we should not have a death penalty that isn't 100% reliable. And right now it is not 100% reliable. I'm not even sure it's 70% reliable. I, I think it is unreliable enough that we really should pause and seriously look at it and try to do a better job. We need to do a better job. Let's talk a little about the issue of executing someone with developmental disabilities. For years, the standard used in Texas to determine intellectual disability was was based on outdated science and was at least partially derived from former Judge Kathy Cochran's analysis of the motivations of a fictional character from a book, Lenny and Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men. When you were on the Court of Criminal Appeals, you authored several influential dissents on this topic, including in the Bobby Moore case decided by the U.S. Supreme Court earlier this year. Soon after you left the bench, the Supreme Court sided with your dissents and overruled the majority on the court. And congratulations, by the way. That was amazing. And now you're working with Mandy at the legislature lobbying to create a a new standard. So talk to us about the implications of what the Supreme Court concluded and what you think the legislature ought to do now. Sure. So in Morby, Texas, if you're not familiar with it, the United States Supreme Court said that what my court had been doing for almost two decades, I think, was just wrong. We were just mishandling our assessment of how intellectual disability is determined. And the reason it's important is because the United States Supreme Court held in Atkins that intellectually disabled people cannot be executed for capital murder. So that's been the law for for many, many years. But what Texas had decided was that there was some intellectual disability that wasn't as bad as other intellectual disability. And basically, if you were mildly intellectually disabled, you could be executed. But if you were more severely intellectually disabled, then you would meet the terms of Atkins. Well, that was just wrong. And it was wrong for a lot of reasons, and it doesn't matter, but it was just wrong. And what the U.S. Supreme Court said in Moore versus Texas was, when we said you can't execute intellectually disabled people, we meant that includes mildly intellectually disabled people. I mean, they, they were pretty elementary in saying, mm-hmm. no, this is pretty clear. It, it means all people, not just the ones you want to think are okay and, and the ones not the ones you exempt out, we mean everybody who is intellectually disabled. So they said that in their first Moore versus Texas opinion. Well, then the case went, got remanded or sent back down to Texas to look at it again. And um, my court again held that Bobby Moore was was not intellectually disabled. So the U.S. Supreme Court says, you're doing it wrong. Basically, he is. 
sends it back down, and then my court sort of thumbs its, uh, uh, I'm not sure what the expression thumbs is. Thumbs its nose. Thumbs yeah. its nose. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make any sense. That's why. No, it doesn't. <laughs> I thought, you know, that, that is a weird expression. <laughs> that my court basically thumbs its nose at the Supreme Court and says, no, we think he, he is not intellectually disabled, and we're going to move forward with the execution. Well, the defense lawyers correctly took it back up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court said, essentially, can you not read? Because <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, yeah. I thought we were pretty clear when we said that he is intellectually disabled, and there's a beautiful concurring opinion from Judge Roberts yes. that I yeah. want to frame that basically said that. Can can you people read? Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and he wrote, it was just two paragraphs two to make sure no one was confused. <laughs> It's like we, he said something like, you know, we agree that intellectual disability can be hard. Sometimes that there are some nuances, and the law can sometimes be hard, but not in this case, <laughs> <laughs> because we told you, we gave you the answer, yeah. <laughs> and somehow you still managed to get it wrong. So it was a, a pretty, um, pretty tough slapdown, uh, and I dissented in my, in my, in both of those uh, cases. I, I was on the prevailing side. Well, it, it was. I, I've really never seen a bench slapping quite like that. It it was I've never seen in Judge Roberts' concurrence the the thing where he just says, "Really, you're not going to follow what we say." I'm Supreme Court Chief Justice here. You yeah. might want to rethink that. Yeah, and and um, Kavanaugh also sided yes. with the defense in this, so it it was not a five four. Right. This right. is very clear. This this was pretty simple stuff when it when it comes down to Supreme Court law. A simple decision. So now coming to the Texas legislature, I also think this is pretty simple stuff that the legislature should enact. I mean, the current bill does two things. Number one, it defines intellectual disability pretty much exactly the way the U.S. Supreme Court just said to define it in Moore versus Texas. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing it does is it says that when you have to decide intellectual disability, you do it in front of the judge pre-trial before you actually get to the trial on the merits. And the reason why I think that's also a no-brainer is because the U.S. Supreme Court said that intellectual disability is based on current medical scientific criteria based on the typical behavior of a defendant. Well, what some, I think, unethical prosecutors want to do, and I, I defend prosecutors, I think most of them are mm -hmm. ethical, good-hearted, good-motivated people. But I think some unethical prosecutors want to have this in front of the jury and have the jury so inflamed by these horrific facts of the offense or so inflamed by the defendant's prior convictions that the jury is so swayed by all of that that they're not able to make the decision based on current medical scientific criteria. And the U.S. Supreme Court said this is not about the offense. It's not about his prior criminal history. It is simply about current medical scientific diagnosis of intellectual disability. And to me, that is properly done before trial and in front of the judge. And that's all the bill does. It's pretty straightforward. I think it's it shouldn't be controversial. And frankly, I think it should pass, you know, unanimously. Now, whether that happens, I, I don't know, but I, I really think it is that clear cut. Well, good luck, and thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it.
now it's time for our rapid fire segment we call the last hurrah mandy are you ready i'm ready okay first one the case of agent at the center of a botched drug rage in houston that left two people dead is also accused of perjuring himself and lying about a ci in in another case that may have put an innocent man behind bars scott how deep do you think this rabbit hole goes I think it could go very deep. In Texas, we have seen several of these uh, drug war scandals where corrupt cops were using bad CIs or accusing innocent people. And in none of them was it just one or two cases. In almost all of them, where you find one or two people being set up, you find quite a few. We saw 39 people pardoned in Tulia. We've seen a lot of episodes here where a corrupt cop sets up someone on a drug case. It's almost never just one. Thanks to free shipping associated with Amazon Prime, most package theft from so-called porch pirates involves low-value items, books, clothing, stationary items, or what have you. In the Texas House, State Representative Gene Wu suggested creating a new felony for stealing packages delivered to someone's home. Mandy, does it make sense to charge someone with a felony for stealing a few books or a package of underwear? No. Absolutely not. Like, I may be really upset if someone were to steal my books or my underwear. They're, they're both very important. But it's a low-value item, and it should be handled the way any larceny is. Sure. You don't need a felony for that? No. Right. <laughs> I, I do think that sometimes poor driving should be a felony, but... Okay. Or driving below the speed limit on the highway. Ah, okay. That, okay. I want to make a jailable offense. It drives me crazy, but... Gotcha. Underwear, no. Okay, last one. The new speaker pro tem in the House, Joe Moody from El Paso, has proposed closing the so-called dead suspect loophole to the Public Information Act, making case records public when a suspect is killed by law enforcement or dies in custody if their case is adjudicated. You know, when a family loses their loved one, whether in a the drug raid in Houston or other cases where suspects die. Refusing to give them information about what happened just adds insult to injury. So good for Speaker Moody for taking this on. Texas Public Information Act could use a lot more attention. When I was a young man, it was among the strongest in the nation, and it's really been gutted like a fish over the last quarter century. And so closing this loophole is a, is a good start. All right, we're out of time, but we'll try and do better the next time. Until then, I'm Scott Henson with Just Liberty. And I'm Amanda Marzullo with the Texas Defender Service. Thanks to Southwest Podcast Stage for having us today. And it was a lot of fun. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. You can subscribe to the Reasonably Suspicious Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. We'll be back next month with more, hopefully better news. And until then, keep fighting for criminal justice reform. It's the only way it's going to happen. Thanks. And a special shout out goes to Casey Slater for having us and to Cadence 13 for sponsoring the podcast. Jill Bell.
traffic tickets, baby. And now I got those debtors' prison blues. Bitch wants the money, but it's already spent. If I had that much money, man, I'd pay them damn rent. My job couldn't make it to work. I left my little girl at school sitting on the curb. The rent is late, the bills are due. I don't know what I'm gonna do. Cause I'm jail bound, baby. Ain't got nothing left to lose. Cause I had travel tickets, baby. Now I got those dead as prison blues. Now I got those from Dennis Prison Blue. He got the choices. 